0: throughout the remainder of this week, as we've been edified and strengthened in our consideration today by worshiping as He has commanded. And might we also add that to those announcements made earlier, the wonderful meal that we did enjoy and the thankfulness that we did share on that behalf. But what a bountiful blessing it was, even as we so often meet and enrich one another spiritually, even so we had opportunity to fellowship physically and to enjoy that terrific meal that was prepared on our behalf. Tonight, might I ask you for the next few moments to consider, as the title indicates, something about the purpose of the law. That very statement and the very title of it may, in fact, well up in our mind a number of questions, not the least of which might be, which law is it to which we're referring? It was my hope in the subtitle to answer that question rather quickly. It is the law of Moses to which we will turn our attention tonight. Might we make note of some introductory thoughts to lead us as to why this is a significant question? Most all who are at least reasonably aware, even modestly, of the Holy Scriptures are aware that there are two large divisions within it. There is the Old Testament consisting of some 39 books and the New Testament consisting of 27 books. But at that point there are certainly the recognition that many degrees of knowledge cease at that point. Understanding the distinction between those testaments, understanding the reason for each one of them, appreciating the thrust and the character of it, meaning our world have not reached that stage in their understanding of the Holy Word of God. And for that reason, there's great misunderstanding and a significant amount of confusion relative to it. With regard to the New Testament, Agreeably, many would much be much more quick to answer that. What's the purpose of the New Testament? Over and over again, the statement is clearly made, as our Savior made, as many of the New Testament writers made. That New Testament is the last will and testament of none other than Christ, and that is heaven's last decree for the remission of sins. There will never be another. No wonder Jesus stated in Luke 24, beginning in verse 46, Thus it is written, And thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Thus that prescription, that gospel message, was the means by which humanity could obtain remission of sins we quickly understand that it would be the last message from heaven toward that goal, wasn't it? There will never be a replacement for the gospel. Never a time when that will be replaced by something superior or better than it. For that reason, Paul to the Thessalonians could state, beginning in verse 7 of chapter 1 of that grain book, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. And thus on that occasion, Paul stated this gospel to the Thessalonians is the final hope you have, and all those who reject it, all those who are disobedient to it, shall forever be punished, for their refusal to obey it. And thus the gospel will never be superseded, never be replaced, never come a time when there will be even an equality to it. But to say all that, we still have not answered about the Old Testament. What was the purpose of that law of Moses? What thrust did it have? What mission did it serve? Over the next few moments tonight, let us take a journey through the Word of God, seeking to better appreciate what was the purpose of that law. Might I mention even as an extended introduction that we ought to make note of a few more thoughts before we actually provide the Bible's answer to it. Partly the reason that this came to my mind that might be worthy for each of our consideration tonight would be that isn't it the case that there is significant misunderstanding with respect to the Holy Word? Isn't it the case that there are verses that are misapplied and misunderstood? Isn't it the case that there are even paragraphs or sections of the Word of God that are misapplied, misappreciated, and misunderstood? In fact, isn't it the case that sometimes whole chapters are taken out of context and thus the message is missed in them? One might even go so far as to say that sometimes even entire books in the Word of God, entire chapters and groups of them, are such that the message is not correctly deduced from them. To say all that, though, is to say that with regard to the Old Testament, it need not be so, and it need not be so with respect to any verse or chapter, when we let the Bible be its own commentator. And when we let God define for us what He means, He does never leave us in a state of ambiguity, in a state of perplexity, in a state of confusion. He defines what He means, and He provides that for us so that we can firmly appreciate and rightly divide the holy word of truth. 2 Timothy 2 verse 15. With regard then to the law of Moses... Would you notice just an example or two that is so incredibly intriguing? For example, if questions were asked of you and me today, or of modern-day mankind, what are to be the elements involved in the obedience to God under the present system? In other words, what must one do in order to be saved? What must one do in terms of acts in order to be pleasing and approved in the eyes of the God of heaven? What steps are essential and necessary in order to be sanctified and justified in the eyes of God? If you and I were to walk up to a person on the street and ask that question, it wouldn't be too shocking if they would turn to the book of Ezekiel and read from chapter 37. Now friend, we must understand something. Though the book of Ezekiel is inspired and though it has a place in the inspired Word of God and though it's there for our appreciation and our understanding, can one find the gospel plan of salvation revealed in the book of Ezekiel? Or for another example, if we were to inquire what are those acts in which God desires mankind to worship Him today, In other words, what things may we freely do and yet understand that they would be pleasing and acceptable in His sight? You and I might well appreciate that upon asking that question, a good friend of ours, a neighbor, might well turn to the 150th Psalm and read out of that grand and noble book. And we in no way are intending to discredit the book of Psalms. It is inspired and it is there for our appreciation and understanding. But can can one find the acts of acceptable worship in the book of Psalms? Before we proceed further, you could add many other examples to those questions. If we were to ask what in fact is required of a person to live daily rightly before God, could we turn to Deuteronomy and find that answer? We each know that the answers to all three questions that have been asked thus far is No. Ezekiel did not reveal the plan of salvation in his day. Furthermore, we know the book of Psalms does not contain for us the acts of acceptable worship today. And lastly, Deuteronomy does not help us firmly understand the character of modern day life in terms of obedient service to Christ. You see, the old law in all of those books previously mentioned, Psalms, Deuteronomy, Ezekiel, all are found in that old law, the law of Moses. And that law had a specific purpose. It had a mission to be fulfilled. Do we live today yet this side of that mission being completed? Do we live in a current day in which yet that purpose hasn't been fully appreciated and fully come to its fruition and fulfilled? as we'll see over the course of our lesson tonight. It is the case that God has directly answered this question about what was the purpose of the law of Moses. And not only that, it is a tremendous lesson to appreciate. For not only will it help us understand and rightly divide God's Word, but it will give us a full recognition of the ammunition of how God has unfolded His plan throughout literally thousands of years. And even now, you and I live in the grandest age of all, the one in which the Christian, the gospel age, is here. To move a little bit further in our discussion then tonight, consider the following points with me, if you would, as we begin to think about the nature of where these ideas lead us. Please note with me that of the New Testament books, there is one special one, one particular one, that addresses this issue more closely than any other. It is the book of Galatians, found in the heart and core of the New Testament. It is from that book that our text was read a moment ago. If I might, at the outset of this section of the lesson, let us consider somewhat briefly the character of those individuals to whom Paul wrote that book of Galatians. It will have an interesting role to play in our fuller understanding of that book. The book of Galatians is a six-chapter book. It is one of those epistles penned by the Apostle Paul. And interestingly enough, it was written to a group of individuals who knew Paul, but however they suffered from a rather difficult matter of character. When Paul came into the regions of Galatia on the first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, he found a group of people ready to accept the gospel. And as he proclaimed and preached the precious truth and unique truth of the gospel, many gladly took it and became members of the Lord's body. However, the people who lived in that part of the world, they were Gauls. At least that was the character of the name given to that category of people. And as such, they tended to be rather fickle in their nature. They tended to be rather weak and gullible they would gladly reach and grab anything that was preached and taught to them. And so after Paul had preached and taught to them the truth, it wasn't long after Paul had left that area to preach elsewhere that other teachers came into the area and these Galatians were happily receptive of their message even though what they taught contradicted what Paul did. You see, they were fickle. They were not loyal and steadfast in that which they previously had received. As Paul thus came back to write this letter to them, this Galatian epistle, he challenged them to appreciate that their fickleness was not good, that there was but one Lord, that namely Jesus Christ, and that gospel that they had received had no equal. Consider some of the texts in this book that paint that picture before us. In Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6, Paul said, I marvel that you are so soon removed from the gospel that was preached unto you. Paul said, I am amazed. How could you leave this gospel that was preached and the truth thereof to go follow after this other thing which he would say in verse 8 is not another gospel? For he said, if the we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. You see, this message that was now being preached to the Galatians was not another gospel. It was perverted. It was corrupted. Who was it that was corrupting it and what was its character? As we read further in the book, we learn that those teachers who had come into the area of Galatia were Judaizing teachers. That is to say, they were teaching to the Galatians that... As Gentiles, you first must become a Jew, subservient to the law of Moses, and then you can become a Christian. But the point was, at least to these Judaizing teachers, you first must serve under the law of Moses. You must give allegiance to it. You must become a Jew, and only then can you be acceptable to God by virtue of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul wasn't finished. After stating to them in chapter 1 the character of the fact that there is no other gospel, notice chapter 2 verse 16. For there he's plainly said that no flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. What was that, Paul? No flesh shall be justified by the works of the law. Now, that was directly opposite to what these Judaizing teachers were teaching. They were claiming you must go back and serve under the law, but Paul said no flesh should be justified by that law. Notice as we look further, he would also say it other places in that book. For instance, notice chapter 5, verse number 4. A very blunt and a very plain statement, but there he said, Ye who would serve under the law, you are fallen from grace. How stern and straightforward were Paul's remarks. He was hoping that they would appreciate by inspiration the character of his comparison and contrast of the inspired gospel versus this law that no longer was the law under which men should serve. Finally, in chapter 6, note verse 15 with me, where there we remember that circumcision was greatly understood in the Old Testament. It was in fact highly discussed and commanded of those descendants of Abraham in Genesis 17. However, Paul said, In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything but a new creature. Here we then had a discussion, a circumstance in which these Judaizing teachers said one thing. Paul said something else and it was certainly his hope that the Galatians would appreciate that what he proclaimed and what he taught was the truth of heaven. It was the revelation of none other than God himself. However, all along this while, we should note that we haven't said anything yet about chapter 3. For in Galatians chapter 3, we do find where this very question, this very subject was presented. Notice again, the Old Testament law of Moses was clearly in the mind of these Galatians. They had grown up serving under it, They had come to understand it. They had, in fact, so much so appreciated the character of the fact that under that law, God had some chosen people. However, under this new law, they were a bit confused. Thus, to them, Paul addressed the question, what was the purpose of that law of Moses? What thrust did it have? What was its mission? You and I would do well today, though 2,000 years removed from the time of that writing, or at least thereabout. In our day, there are still those confused about the purpose of the law of Moses. There are still those who are uncertain about what purpose it served and whether or not it even fulfilled the purpose that it did have. Tonight, and it will not take us too long to do that because Paul is brief, but what was the purpose of that law of Moses? As we begin, we should very sternly and strongly say, that law of Moses is no longer the law under which God is to be served. That law has passed away, hasn't it? In Hebrews 8, verse 13, the inspired writer of that noble and grand book stated, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. That statement of Hebrews eight thirteen is practically a direct quotation from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. You see, Jeremiah, even in the days of the long past, prophesied of a time when that very law under which Jeremiah served would no longer be the law under which men would serve God. It would have come a time when that law would give way to another. There would be a time it would be replaced, superseded, if you will, by a better covenant. And so it was that the Hebrew writer in no uncertain terms stated that law is no longer the law under which we serve the God of heaven. Consider some other texts and passages that lead us in that direction. To the Colossian brethren, Paul could state in chapter 2 verses 12 to 14 that that law was nailed to Christ's cross. It has been taken out of the way. Thus the Colossians, Paul told the same thing he's now telling the Galatians. That law of Moses, as great as it may have been in its day, and as powerful as it was in its day, its day has passed. That law is not the law under which men serve the God of heaven today. To say those two texts does remind us that in Ephesians 2, verses 15 and following, to the Ephesian brethren, Paul shared a very similar message. A message in which he said that it was the very body of Christ that hath made both one, that middle wall of partition has been removed, it has been taken away. And thus is as surely as we note then that that law of Moses is not the law under which we serve today, what was its purpose during its day? What satisfaction did it bring? Well, let's return to Galatians 3 and note the answers that the inspired apostle Paul gave to that question. Perhaps first we can note that Paul used an example. Look with me in chapter 3 of Galatians, and let us read verses 14 and 15. Galatians 3, beginning in verse 14. "...that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet, if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto." And thus the issue with which Paul opens this discussion is the following. He says, let me speak after the manner of men for a moment. That is to say, let me draw an example that each of us can easily relate to. Isn't it wonderful how often God will use a circumstance with which we're very familiar and draw from that eternal and timeless lessons? Jesus often did that by way of parables, didn't he? He could take something as innocent and simple as sowing seed in Matthew 13 and yet from that draw timeless examples of what is required of us to be pleasing to God. Here Paul says, so let me explain this at least first by making comparison to a human example. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. We are well aware that even in human government, even in other matters with which we're familiar, once a law is passed and ratified, it becomes an accepted part of the legal laws of the land or of the community if it happens to be local in character, and no man disannuls it, and no man has the right to set that aside. It is a recognized part then of the law of that area or land, isn't it? For instance, when the Tennessee State Constitution was amended not many years back, when the state approved that lottery idea, There was a time that the Tennessee state constitution absolutely prohibited a lottery in this state. But yet, not many years back now, what's it been, four years, five years perhaps, we and you and I had the opportunity to engage in a referendum and a statewide decision was made. The decision was to remove that earlier prohibition and thus allow a lottery in the state of Tennessee. We each remember what the result of that referendum was. It passed overwhelmingly. Sadly, but it did. We now have a lottery in this state. Now, we might ask, now the state law has been changed. There is now a lottery by virtue of our state constitution. Notice, that is now not capable of being disannulled or taken aside. It is a part of the accepted and recognized law of this state. What is Paul's point? Paul's point is a similar line of understanding will help us appreciate the law of Moses. For in fact, in the words that follow, he takes us back to a promise. Notice with me in verses 16 and following. In fact, the opening sentence of verse 16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. To some, it may seem that Paul has changed discussions. He was talking about this law that no man can disannul once ratified, and now suddenly he's talking about a promise. Is he talking about the same thing? Is it something different? Here's what Paul's referring to. He calls to the mind of these Galatians the very fact of what happened in the days of Abraham. Long before now, the events that we read about in Galatia, of course. But remember that Paul said God made promises to Abraham. Let us remember what we do find in those early chapters of the book of Genesis. It was the case in Genesis 3.15 that God made a direct promise even to the serpent that in fact the head of the serpent will be crushed by the seed of the woman. However, when we come to the time of Abraham, we note God makes promises to him. Might we list one in particular? Genesis 22 verse 18 It was to him that God expressly said, In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. God made a promise to Abraham. Through his seed, all nations, not just Jews, but all nations of the earth would be blessed. As you and I wind down the stream of time and wonder whether the fulfillment of that came and when it came, Paul's point is this, that promise was made long before the law of Moses was ever given. Notice the law of Moses wasn't given until Exodus chapter 20, when the children of Israel came forth from Egyptian bondage, and there they stood at the base of Mount Sinai, and Moses had ascended that mountain, and it quaked and smoked in Exodus 19. It was on that mountain that God gave with His very finger ten commandments and over the days that followed by word of mouth a whole host of others that we recognize as the law of Moses. But notice, that occurred long after the events of Genesis 22. Hundreds of years passed from the time God made the promise to Abraham until the time he gave the law at Mount Sinai. Isn't it interesting then that as that promise was made, Could it possibly be the case that the law that was given at Sinai disannulled the promise? Could it possibly be said that the law that was given at Sinai then made the promise to Abraham obsolete? Paul's point was no, that could never have happened. Why? Because just like a man can't change the law once it's made, once God made that promise, man could not change it. That promise to Abraham never was set aside by the law of Moses. Rather, the law was given in addition to it. The law did not set the promise aside. And thus, we notice that helps appreciate just a bit the character of that law of Moses. I use very carefully the words, put beside. There is a rendering here in our text that seems a bit problematic. Let us reread verse 19, Galatians 3, verse 19. In fact, to this very character, Paul opens that verse by saying, Wherefore then serveth the law? That's the very question we're addressing tonight. Wherefore then serveth the law? The American Standard renders that. What then is the law? The verse goes on to say, It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made and it was I and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator that word added that the king james translators used is not really the best translation of the verb from greek it would have been far better to say it was put beside it stood beside the law of moses it did not replace the promise it did not replace it it did not elevate itself above it The two stood together. The law was placed beside the promise. And isn't it interesting that Paul would then say, because of transgressions. Let us notice what then it means to be put beside. What else could we say about that? He informs us in verse 19. It was added because of transgressions. What kind of transgressions was under study, under discussion? We realize that that Old Testament law, that law of Moses, was such that it aided in the identification of sin. We know that because Paul would say in Romans 7, verse 7, I learned what covetous meant when God said, Thou shalt not covet in the tenth of the Ten Commandments. He said, I did not know what that meant until God commanded that thou shalt not covet. And thus, that law of Moses was given to check sin, to identify so that men, at least those who were interested in serving God, could do so by eliminating, or at least as much as possible, the nature of those things that did not please him. But that very nature of checking sin, or identifying what sin was under that law, that directly means that something else could be said. That Old Testament law of Moses demonstrated the nature, the magnitude of sin. We notice that up until the time of the promise, up until the time the law of Moses was given, what kind of identification did we find anywhere in the Bible that said, Thou shalt not, and in other places, thou shalt. It was few and far between, wasn't it? But under the law of Moses, we learned that God is a God of law. We learned that he was one who respected his will and no other. We learned that in the character of what he required regarding transgression, that there was a great magnitude to sin. Sin was not to be taken lightly. Perhaps if the Jews were to learn no other lesson, it was to be that one. Think about how often they had to go to that tabernacle and offer sacrifices for something that they had done or something they had not done. In fact, you might notice as you read the book of Leviticus how these various sins, for a trespass offering, there were certain things that had to be done. For a sin offering, there were certain things that had to be done. For a peace offering, there were certain things that had to be done. And on top of all that, there were weekly offerings and daily offerings and those offerings that occurred monthly. The people certainly were to come to realize that sin is so terrible It is so grand and great that it requires this constant sacrificing just to try and deal with it, just so that we can be pleasing unto God. It would appear that in many instances they did learn that lesson, but it seems their memories were too short. They would soon lapse back into failure to to obey God. But notice what else we can say from this very text. What else did they learn by the character of transgression? They learned that nothing that they could do, nothing innately in themselves could permit the forgiveness of sin. There was no way that a Jew could ever be convinced that he could forgive his own sin. Why? Because all these sacrifices had to be made. On the day of atonement, that high priest was to go once a year into that most holy place and there make an atonement for the sins of the whole congregation. Never could they atone for their own sin. All of that speaks volumes, doesn't it? Did you notice again the promise? He stated again in verse 19, it was added, It stood beside because of transgressions when, Paul, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. Did you notice in that that Paul's statement was, the law by its very character was temporary. It was only to last until the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And thus anything that's written in that law is thus not binding once that law is taken away. It would be very much like you and me today saying, well, it is illegal to participate in the lottery because the state constitution says so. And the person to whom we're speaking would say, we, where have you been? You must be kidding. We amended the state constitution. The lottery is legal now. That's Paul's very point. To them, to those Galatians, he thus noted, that law is not in effect anymore. You can't go back and serve under it even if you want to. The very nature thus of that forcefulness wasn't easy for them to fully appreciate. But notice what else he went on to say. In verses 23 and 24, we've noted then that that law was to last until the seed should come. Paul wasn't finished with that idea. Verse 23, "...but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith which should afterwards be revealed." Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Oh, how simple. How extremely basic, isn't it? He says we were, before faith came, under a schoolmaster. That schoolmaster was our tutor to bring us to Christ. But once the seed has come, once the faith has been established we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under that tutor. And isn't it amazing in verse 25 that after that faith has come, after that seed has arrived, after the promises have been revealed, he goes on to say we're no longer under that tutor, no longer under that schoolmaster which was the law. The law's principal purpose was to naturally and appropriately lead one to an appreciation of the seed of the Christ when He came. And inasmuch as the prophecies contained within it would not only make that possible, but make it overwhelmingly abundant. It's no wonder then that when Matthew and the other New Testament preachers of the first century proclaimed the truth, they would often quote that Old Testament. And in so doing, they would illustrate that Jesus was its fulfillment in every respect. And Jesus himself said that too, did he not, in Luke 24, verse 44, when he said that all that is written in the law of Moses and in the Psalms and in the prophets concerning me hath been fulfilled. Luke 24, verse 44. And thus, you and I today, as we appreciate that we do not serve beneath that law, we cannot go to Ezekiel to find out the plan of salvation today. We can't turn to the psalmist and there learn what are the acceptable elements of worship. Neither can we turn to the book of Deuteronomy in hopes of learning what daily must be done in service to God. But we can turn to the book of Acts to learn what one must do to be a Christian. For the Acts is under the New Testament era, the dispensation of the fullness of time. And in terms of learning how one must worship, I can, and you and I can, turn to the book of 1 Timothy and read chapter 2 of that book and learn the character of what God demands in worshipful service in this present age and time. And in terms of learning about God's law of divorce and remarriage, it is not to Deuteronomy that we turn. It is to the book of Matthew, that New Testament prescription that lays before us the beauty and power of God's last declaration of faith for the human family. That last declaration is, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Didn't the law of Moses do so beautifully in fulfilling its purpose? It did it well. It wasn't God's fault that humanity did not read it and study it and appreciate and understand it. In light of that comment, could we not then conclude or summarize our lesson for for this evening? That law of Moses, of course, was a powerful thing. It was the law under which they served in that day and time, but it was temporary. It was only to last until the seed should come. And later in Galatians 3, Paul will expressly say that the seed is Christ. And thus, once Christ came, and once he put in place the gospel, that old law was no more. It was nailed to the cross, taken out of the way. And indeed, in a sense that it vanished and decayed away, its glory had faded, and now men were to serve under the gospel ministration. That law of Moses is thus no longer authoritative for you and me. Many times the New Testament makes that point. Recall on the Mount of Transfiguration, in fact, when there appearing with Jesus was none other than Moses and Elijah. Moses, the figurehead of the law of Moses, and yet... God said this, speaking of Jesus as my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. God didn't say, hear Moses. He didn't say, hear Elijah. The day for hearing them is no more. Now it's time to hear Christ. And in Hebrews 1, verse number 1, do we not there read but? The powerful character and statement that God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken to us by His Son. You and I do great insult to the God of heaven if we then try to serve beneath that old law. That old law can't be served beneath anymore. It's been taken out of the way. Oh, that men everywhere would appreciate the nature of the purpose of that old law. And understand that it served its purpose well, but now it has been done away. Fulfilled entirely, Matthew five seventeen and 18. Today then, as we seek for the gospel plan of salvation and learn how one must worship, we turn to the New Testament books. This very night, are you a Christian serving beneath the New Testament gospel of Jesus Christ? If you are, then you know the joy and all the spiritual blessings that you do have in light of that fact. Ephesians 1 verse 3. But if you've never become a Christian, please think seriously about your state, even this very night. Jesus shed precious blood at Calvary for you. He, in fact, demands you believe upon Him. You must repent of your sins. You must confess His matchless name as the only begotten Son of God. And you must be immersed, baptized in water for the remission of sins. If we could assist you in doing that tonight... We've had the privilege over recent weeks of witnessing that, and it never ceases to be utterly remarkable. God can change lives indeed. We could help you do that tonight. It is not the power of me or the water or any other person. It's the power of Jesus. If you've become a Christian, though at some time in the past, but you haven't been faithful, you haven't been loyal and allegiant to Christ, remember that to the Corinthians, Paul did say, be you steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. First Corinthians fifteen, verse fifty eight. If we could help you reinstate that place of faithfulness, Brother Harold has chosen the hymn of invitation. We'd be honored and happy to aid you in whatever public way we can. If that need is one in your life tonight, let that be known while together we stand and while we sing.